The podcast will begin after this message. Today's episode is presented by Unesda. Achieving circularity for plastic packaging is a top priority for Europe's soft drinks industry. That's why we've set ambitions to make our plastic packaging more sustainable. By 2025, 100% of soft drinks plastic packaging will be recyclable and PET bottles will contain an average minimum of 25% recycled content. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. As you listen to this, we're kicking off a week of hell in Brussels. Seven back-to-back summits. I won't even bother listing them. It's going to make me too depressed. But you'll be pleased to know that the 2019 election campaign is starting to get fun. We've got candidates. We've got drama. We've got Macron's youth movement canvassing the bars of Brussels, not only to stir the interest of young people, but we think to recruit a bunch of parliament assistants from other parties as they do it. In this week's episode, we've got Manfred Weber, the favourite for the European People's Party nomination for European Commission President in 2019. Weber tells us about who he is as a person, and we tackle issues from difficult governments in Hungary and Bulgaria to the mess for Weber's Christian social union that is this weekend's Bavarian election. I also invited both Manfred Weber and Alexander Stubb to debate in the Politico office, a primary debate for the EPP nomination. Stubb said yes when he was appearing as a guest on last week's EU Confidential episode. But Weber dodges the question on this week's episode. He told me all about the importance of reconnecting with citizens and straight talk from politicians, but he doesn't want to commit to this debate. Let's hear from him now, the leader of the European People's Party in the European Parliament, Manfred Weber. So joining me now on EU Confidential is Manfred Weber. He is the man who is the favourite to become the European People's Party nominee for European Commission President in 2019. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity and thank you for the favourite. It sounds good. Yeah, well, I, I really think that you are in the lead when we talk to people around Brussels and the different national parties. So it's a good position to be in. And of course, people in Brussels, they know you as the leader of the European People's Party, the biggest party in the parliament. They know that you're running now for this job. But of course, you started politics back in Bavaria at the age of 29, which uh, not so long ago, but you know, you've built up a career since then and come to the parliament. And one thing I wanted to ask at the beginning is it's the big Bavarian election this week. How are you feeling about that? You're a senior figure in the Christian Social Union there. They might have to go into a coalition, but you're here in Brussels with other campaigns and other responsibilities. So how does that leave you feeling? Well, we are in campaign. We are fighting. We are trying to convince. And one of my main arguments is that my party, the CSU, is a real Bavarian party. So we only have the interests of this region, of this strong region in Europe in mind. And when people want to have in the future really a powerful defender of Bavarian interests in Berlin and also in Brussels, then they have to vote for the CSU. So this unique, uh, let me say, status of the CSU uh, can help us in the, in the last uh, days now. But uh, generally speaking, we are in the same situation like all over Europe. My party, the People's Party, is. We are under pressure from the right, extremists and populists. In Germany, it's the AFD. And they are our problem. My main answer is fight against the extremists. Tell people that they are a risk for your life, for your pension, for the economic development. Don't trust the short answers of the populists. It's interesting you raise that because we were looking at the projections for what the different parties will win in the election next year. We have this new section of Politico where we make these seat projections. Yeah, You're the biggest now, 217. 
but you might go down to something like 180 seats. Does that worry you that you'll be in a, a more difficult situation of maybe having to work with the populists or some big new liberal group in order to get things done at the parliament next time round? From a principled point of view, it's clear that we still have to compromise in Europe. Nobody will be strong enough to govern alone. That's absolutely clear. The key question for next year's elections will be, will there be an, an Italian situation? How strong will be the populists? Some of them are also extremists and nationalists. How strong is their share inside of the European Parliament? And I want to remind everybody in the vote for Jean-Claude Juncker, last time when we had the process to vote for a commission president, we had only 45 votes more than needed for the qualified majority. And that was another political landscape four years ago. We had Martin Schulz, we had Jean-Claude Juncker, Giefer Hofstadt, I myself, we fought for the concept of Spitzenkandidat and we guaranteed the democratic process behind. But again, with Jean-Claude Juncker, a real great European political figure, only 45 votes more than needed. That means for me that the next European Parliament, in another political landscape, there is a risk that there is a majority against partnership, against readiness to compromise. And that would mean a blocked institution. And finally, that can also block the whole European Union. So everybody must be aware the next European elections are not only side events. They will be key for the history of the European Union. And is that one of the reasons why you make such an effort to keep a dialogue with figures like Viktor Orban or Borisov in Bulgaria? You know, it's natural in one way. They're members of the European People's Party, but they also face a lot of criticism for how they govern. But you're always someone who's tried to keep a bridge with those people. Is it with that in mind, it's about the practicalities and the functioning of Europe that you think that door has to stay open? There is one precondition for all the talks and all these bridge-building approaches, and that is uh, that we have to have respect for our principal values. You know, that is the Hungarian question, that is the Polish question. But if we agree on these principles, then it's clear that bridge-building is Europe. That is the nature of Europe, that is the DNA of Europe, that we are ready to talk to each other. A few days ago, the president of the Italian parliament was here in my office. He's a, a politician from the five stars. I don't like a lot of these uh, ideas from the five stars movement, but we have to sit together and talk to each other, have an understanding about each other. And yes, I'm a bridge builder. That is one of my main messages. I don't want to separate between good and bad Europeans. I don't want to have a Europe of east and west, of south and north, of small and big countries. I have the idea of a united Europe, of Europeans in this Europe. And that is what I stand for. That is what I fight for. That's why bridge building is one of my key elements for my campaign. And do you think that you'll be able to keep EPP together? We saw this big divisive vote in the parliament in September. But it seems to me that people probably had their say on Orban there and they won't vote to try and kick him out of the EPP. But you think you'll be able to manage that and, and keep it as one team? Well, that depends a lot on Viktor Orban because... Uh, your two main concerns when it is about Hungary. The first thing is about the Central European University. I cannot accept that the freedom of science is under pressure in the European Union. And the second thing is the NGO law. So for me, um, a lively NGO scenery is, is part of a modern society. And I cannot accept that this is under pressure in Hungary. So there are two very concrete points, despite others, but there are two very concrete points on the table where Hungary must move, where Viktor Orban must go in another direction. And that's why we fully support uh, the Commission in this regard. We are in favor of this Article 7 process now. I voted in favor. So Hungary must understand, Fidesz must understand that they have to move there. On the other hand, 
Article 7 is start of a dialogue. That is the substance of this uh, legal act we did in the European Parliament. And dialogue means, again, to sit together and to try to convince, but on a new upgraded level. And that is what we are doing. In making the case to be Commission President, some people rely on their big, long CVs. They say all of their experience as a minister or prime minister or a president. They talk about their five languages or that they worked in four EU institutions. And then there's another school of thought in politics these days, which is it's about your connection to people and that uh, voters don't want these career politicians. So as someone who is a bit on the younger end of the spectrum, who hasn't been at things like the EU summit table, tell us a bit why your perspective is the best one to lead the European Commission next year. I think I can do it. I gave the proof in a way because I managed a group of 219 colleagues out of 28 member states in the last uh, four years. I would say in a good way, because uh, we are the largest group in the European Parliament, but when it's about the voting behavior, about legislation, about the interest of people, we are the most united group in the European Parliament. So what I say of bridge building, of bringing people together, I managed in the last year to keep this small Europe, my EPP group, let me say, together. That is my experience, what I can contribute. And yes, I have not the typical... EU bubble career, let me say. I was not educated in America. I was not studying in Paris. I did it at home. I did it. I was. I was always rooted in at home, but I was always from the beginning on a convinced pro-European and convinced European. And I think that is more needed than ever before to know more about the farmers' interests, about the workers in my BMW factory and plant in in Bavaria and so on, to be connected to people and to get an idea about their concerns. One thing for my political approach is bridge building and the second is reconnect to people. Brussels is today the bubble, it's the black box Brussels where people have no idea how they can influence the decision making process and what I stand for is as a parliamentarian, as a leader of the biggest group, I stand for parliamentarization and for a democratic Europe. And maybe tell us something people don't know about you or that you learnt from this connection in Bavaria that you bring into your office and your day job here in Brussels. We know a lot about the details of our documents, about our, about our legislation. We really love to discuss issues and compromise in the European Parliament between the institutions. So we are focusing on our, on our technical approach. And what we have to do is to make it lively for people, to talk about issues which have something to do with the daily life of the people. So that means also that the people must allow us to make things more simple when it's about campaigning where you can say yes or no. It's not always easy, but mm-hmm. for example, in the election campaign to put on the table, should Turkey become a member of the European Union? Yes or no? And people don't want to have a diplomatic answer. Mm-hmm. People want to have European opinion. Do you think it's a wise idea, a clever idea to do it or not? And I would say, no, it's not a good idea to do these enlargement talks. We should, we should have a good partnership with Turkey, but not as a full member. And that is what people expect from us. Yes or no? Clear answers as politicians And that is one of the lessons you learn when you're close to people. They don't want to have a diplomatic answer, they want to have a clear answer. Maybe that was the inspiration for the campaign that first made me pay attention to you, which was that you were a big supporter of giving free interrail passes to 18-year-olds as a way to allow them to experience Europe. And I thought, okay, this is a man who gets an idea of how you can sell something in a European-wide campaign. Was that the thinking there? Exactly. And additionally, the idea that Europe shouldn't only be an institution which cares about legislation, about distribution of money, a more bureaucratic institution. We should open the windows, we should open the doors in Brussels. And that means to also invest in emotions. 
And I myself, I was traveling as an 18 years old uh, young boy. Where did you go? Uh, I was in Ireland. I was in Scotland. I traveled all over Europe. One month we went from Edinburgh to Sicily. So really crossed the... We slept always in the, in the train. So it was really a fascinating experience. And I can share with you, I had one discussion with an old British citizen in a pub in, in Wales. Mm-hmm. And there we talked. I was 18 years old. We talked about the Second World War. That was fascinating for me to experience what it means to be a European with our history, but also with our future approach. And I want to see a lot of young people to get this experience about what Europe means. That we can be proud of our regions. I'm from Bavaria. We can be proud about our nations. I'm a German citizen, but we are Europeans. And that is so great to see and to experience. So again, not technical, not only bureaucratic, but also emotions. Europe needs emotions and deserves emotions. Now... Uh, I asked Alexander Stubb last week on the podcast, why is it time for a Nordic president? So I'll ask you the same question, but for your country, why is it time for a German president? I would say, let's try to overcome this perspective. I'm running as a group leader of the biggest group in the European Parliament. On national level, nobody would ever take such an approach into question when a leader of the biggest political family with a strong mandate from 28 member states is asking for a governmental responsibility as prime minister, something like this. Nobody would take this into question. And that is also my starting point. That's why I was announcing my candidature in the format of my group. I feel at home where I have already an European responsibility. I don't hide that I'm a German, but you know I'm, I'm a Bavarian. That is a little bit specific, a German mentality. And I'm closer to Milan than to Berlin, for example. So that's, that's my feeling. That's my, even the Bavarians feel this, that they are closer to Austria than to some of the people in, in the north of Germany. So let's allow us to be Europeans. And I'm an European politician. And in terms of policy, is there any area that you're passionate about that you think the Commission needs to do better in? Like something you would change compared to today if you won the position of president? I feel myself, first of all, in a tradition of the EPP because the EPP worked over the last decades always on this European idea. We are the, in a way, the owner of, of the development together with the socialists and liberals, but we contributed a lot with Helmut Kohl, with others and so on. And that's why I see myself in a tradition. I think that Jean-Claude Juncker did a great job for Europe in the last four years. That is, first of all, the starting point. But it's obvious that I'm a new generation. It's obvious that I want to open a new chapter and start a new era for the European development. And that is mainly to reconnect to people. That is the main aspect which we must do. And that is probably more important than to solve migration thing or the euro crisis. That is normal political business, important one. But the most important thing is to reconnect with people. That's my approach. That is what I stand for. And it is about the way you talk or you will get out more, like you will do more tours of, of Europe. Is that the way you would make that happen? Absolutely. To go out, to be present. When there are fires in Sweden or in Portugal, when people die in, in Greece, I think a commission president must be there. So to show up, to be present with the, with the concerns of the people. It's the issues which are European-wide, covered by media, where people feel emotionally touched. And then a president must be there, must be close to people. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, commission president must also, and that is also what, we, what I try to, to prepare now in our campaign, must also have the will for long-term future proposals, not only day-by-day business, mm-hmm. long-term future proposals. And I'll give you one example for this. We are ahead of a revolution with the digital development. When a truck driver is sitting in his truck and he's listening to the radio and the radio reports, the news are reporting about uh, the self-driving truck. What is the truck driver thinking? 
and he's obviously thinking, what about me? What is my future? What is my pension? What, what, is, what is happening with me in such a world? And that is only one example. I think everybody will have contact with this revolution ahead of us, this digital revolution. And that's why we have to give a new answer on a new fairness in the European society so that nobody feel left behind. In the Trump election campaign, the concern of the middle class was a dominating issue in this campaign. And that's why having this in mind, that this is creating concerns and even fears among our citizens, digitalization and globalization. As EPP, we have to be the party who gives a proper answer. I wouldn't say that I already have all the answers in, in my mind. I know there is a big challenge ahead. And as a big party, we have to give proper pictures for the future. Now, one final question. We're big believers at Politico in bringing people together for discussions, including election debates. So we've invited all the EPP candidates to have a debate about why they should be the EPP candidate in our offices. Alexander Stubb said he would come along. You told me you'd be waiting for nominations to close, but uh, are you willing to join us for a debate at some point in October? Well, I'm looking forward for the debates with my competitors from the other parties. That is what will happen after the nominations, so when the parties have concluded their nomination period. I want to be clear with you, my first idea for the next four weeks is not mainly the Brussels bubble, let me say. It's mainly... It's mainly for our, everyone, not just delegates. the Brussels bubble. I know, so. I know that you are a lively and an open uh, platform, but the delegates, the 750 delegates, have the first say in who will become. And that's why I'm investing a lot in this, uh, in this aspect, to talk with the delegates, to talk with the party structures out in the whole European Union. So we are talking at the moment about an internal process, mm -hmm. but I love uh, discussions and we have to do it when the candidates are present and then people have a choice about the future of this European Union. We will uh, work on getting those delegates in the room. <laughs> we won't give up. Great, yeah, absolutely. Manfred thank Weber, you so thank you for joining us. Thank you. That was Manfred Weber. If you missed last week's interview with Alexander Stubb, his rival for European Commission president inside the European People's Party, Check it out on SoundCloud, Apple, or wherever you found this podcast. Next up, the Brussels Brains Trust, after this message. A message from UNESDA. Achieving circularity for plastic packaging through optimal collection, recycling, and use of recycled content is a top priority for the European soft drinks industry. Our new ambitions contribute to building a circular model for plastic packaging by improving its recyclability, recycled content, collection, and reuse. And now it's time to welcome back the Brussels Brains Trust. Hello, Alva. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Lena. Hi, Lena. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Alva. Good morning. I'm excited to be here. We've still got some sun in the middle of October. That is not a normal Brussels thing. So why don't we start on some positive notes with some thumbs up? I think that, Alva, you wanted to nominate a recent Nobel Prize winner. Yes, well, actually two. One is a Yazidi activist whose name is... Nadia Murad. Nadia Murad, and who Lena is a big fan of. Well, it wasn't really my nomination, it was Lena's, but maybe Lena wants to take it away. Well, it's very inspiring to see a Yazidi woman who has been captured by Daesh, who uh, suffered, who was violated, raped, uh, managed in 2015 to escape, go to Germany. Germany opened its arms to her and she had a second life and another opportunity. But what she did, this lady, the amazing, inspiring lady, she really brought the attention of the whole world for the suffering of the Yazidi women with Daesh and what they did in northern of Iraq and in Syria. 
And she didn't stop there. She's still raising funds, trying to prosecute most of the Daesh fighters who have raped her and her sister and another 8,000 Yazidi women. So it was really just to show first, Europe can give another chance to such a humanitarian crisis that took place in Iraq and in Syria. And second, women, really, we need to be she for she in order to really support one another. And of course, her co-winner was Dennis Mukwege, who is a gynecologist who has supported tens of thousands of women who have been victims of sexual violence in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Yeah, and I think obviously it's a very appropriate year to honour Nobel Prize winners who are working on sexual violence because sexual violence in war, it obviously hurts the woman, but it breaks families, it breaks societies. And and that was the whole thing about the amount of sexual violence there was in the DRC was used as a weapon of war. So yeah, I think it's a really appropriate time to recognise both of these people who did very individual things in individual ways. One a survivor of sexual violence and an activist and the other equally an activist but also you know really helped and they were saying that sometimes he did 10 surgeries a day during the height of the war so that's yeah it's amazing. Okay well on a different scale but much closer to home we also saw activists at the European Parliament this week launch their Me Too EP blog basically cataloguing the sorts of stories that we were collecting around about a year ago now here at Politico, but putting them together in a catalogue in a way we weren't able to because we weren't able to verify quite a lot of the claims. But it's basically self-organising at the parliament to say there's a culture of silence here about these issues. It cannot be right that no one has ever made a successful official complaint on harassment in a building that has thousands of people working in it. Have you had any reactions to that development? I thought it was a really good initiative. Let's see what comes out of it, though, because it's early days, obviously. But things like this can take on a life of their own. And I think we've talked about this so many times on the podcast. We had people, when we used to do the Dear Politicos, saying what had happened to them. Then we also covered the recent voluntary sexual harassment code. And I think that's kind of a response to the fact that the European Parliament hasn't done very much about it. You know, they have this committee that deals with the complaints, but, you know, let's see where it goes. I believe it's a great progress. It's a little step. They need a lot of support, trust and confidence. It comes by time. We cannot encourage quickly the women not to be afraid, not to risk their jobs and their livelihoods by just coming out and filing a complaint. So it's going to take a bit of time and we really need to support them. It's timely as well because we have elections next year. I think it's heads up for the voters to really think when you're voting, is this future MEP going to really have a say? Is he going to change the status quo? And thumbs up, that brings us to uh, the political elections hub that was launched yesterday. I would like to nominate it. (laughs) I really would (laughs) like to give triple thumbs up for that, uh, giving that I come from this industry and it's really, really great. I congratulate you, Ryan, and and Politico team for that. It's simple, it's easy to use. It's something that explains the maze, the complicity of the European elections, and you just brought it to us in such beautiful, interactive, not boring, colorful. I can go on, 
but I will keep bringing you uh, my feedback well, as we go on. Maybe I tell people where to find it, um, because I, I do feel a little bit proud of this. It's the project I've been working on since I stopped the Brussels Playbook earlier in the year. But you wouldn't know where to find it yet, because we just did it as a soft launch on Tuesday. But if you go to politico.eu, at the top of the page, there is a little button for the 2019 European elections. Or you can go direct to the URL, politico.eu forward slash 2019 dash European dash elections. I know that's a bit complicated, but to give you a bit of a taste of, of what's in it, you can go through and see the election by the numbers. You can build coalitions about who would be needed to form a majority in the parliament based on current opinion polling. You can take quizzes to see which MEP matches your own belief system. You will be able to read a blog, a daily blog, with updates on anything election-related that I'm writing. And you can also go through and see all of the latest news that Politico already does well. So there's a lot to dive into, and we'll build it out month by month, where you can start seeing country pages, where we'll have national election playbooks. There's going to be heaps more to come. But I want to make sure people see this as a truly European event, and that it's a year-long process, not just something to think about the week before. Now... It's not all thumbs up in the world this week, though, is it? We've had another murdered journalist. We had Victoria Marinova murdered in Bulgaria. She happened to be working on stories related to corruption. That's a common theme that comes up in these sorts of cases. And it is the fourth case that we've seen in Europe. We are used to journalists being murdered around the world. It's always terrible. But we are not used to this being a string of events in Europe. And that has some serious social and political implications. Every death is sad, but it tells us something else is going wrong in our society. Yeah, I think that journalists and the media and press are quite embattled all around the world. We're seeing a rise of fake news, but also people who are willing to stand up and tell the truth being murdered. You would hope that, obviously, if it's an arrest in Germany, that it would be independently verified and maybe this will shed further light on it, I suppose it's one to watch. What's needed is to keep an eye, is to make sure that the rule of law, the freedom of expression, the European values that we keep talking about it is really taking place on a national level. It's not a surprise that it took place. And again, they don't say in any of the investigations what happened, uh, where we are. Last year, we have witnessed the assassination of Caruana in Malta and no updates on that. So you're saying it's not just the crime, which is obviously regrettable, but it's Precisely. how the investigation is conducted. Absolutely. And our condolences to her, to her family, to her friends. It's, it's a horrible, ter- like terrible things to happen. But again, we need to make sure that there is a sort of transparency in the investigation. And what would happen to a European country if these things take place? I mean, they should pay a price somehow. And I think we also have to touch for a second on the referendum that took place in Romania over the weekend. That was a referendum designed to define families as heterosexual only in the Constitution, and it failed miserably. And in fact, I'm a little bit suspicious because fewer people voted in favor of this change than signed a petition to make the referendum happen. And that is not really how these things work. Normally, a core of people push to make a Mm -hmm. referendum happen, and then a much larger group of people support whatever the change is. So I'm a little bit suspicious about how those signatures were collected. Mm-hmm. That's a very interesting point. I hadn't thought about that. But I don't think necessarily we should see this as a statement of progress in Romania because a lot of people are saying that it was actually kind of a boycott of the government rather than 
that they feel like families should be rainbow families or we should acknowledge rainbow families. So that's just one thing to say. But I think it's going to be very interesting how this all plays out because the Romanian presidency is coming up and we might not see the same government. We know that there's been quite a lot of protesting out on the street due to corruption. So, yeah, let's see what happens. And so it's the Romanian EU presidency where they'll be running all of the council meetings and summits. uh, As of January. Yeah. It will be interesting to see the agreements and the uh, negotiations and the statements from the EU next year on any of the countries that they don't respect gay rights, uh, that they encourage more rights in many parts of the world, especially third countries. So I, I would be really ironic to see the Romanian presidency on top of that and see what they fail to do in their own country, going out and preaching again the, the whole world. I, I'm really looking forward to see next year how many times and how many countries will be bashed on that. Now, maybe to have a final note. Maybe we'll call it a new category, trending in Europe. I noticed one trend sitting down over the last few days blogging about the elections, and that is that everyone, regardless of where they are on the political spectrum in Europe, is punching at Steve Bannon. It's a new sport to say that the guy isn't welcome in the European election process and that you don't support him or you aren't inspired by him, whether you're Marine Le Pen, whether you are the Macron team in France, or whether you are other people, obviously, on the left of the political spectrum. It's everyone saying they don't want anything to do with him. This is really great, and this is a bright, and this shows you that Europe is still Europe, and we don't need someone who failed in so many other jobs, let's say, and brought disasters to his own country to come and touch the European peace project. So really great for the Europeans to keep uh, to keep it up like that. You're looking skeptical, Alva. No, I always thought it was audacious that he was coming after being kicked out of the White House to say, I'm going to be the lead the vanguard of populism in Europe. I'm, I was thinking to myself, there are already people who are much more successful at it, leading it here. So why do they need you? But yeah, I think that, you know, the media is obsessed by Steve Bannon. So it's no surprise that people are willing to throw his name into into articles and things like that and say, you know, I we don't need him because maybe this is something that has been a narrative created by the media and Bannon himself. And mm. they're just speaking out against it. So, One yeah. thing I was fascinated by, we had some researchers from the Pew Research Center come to our offices last week and they went through research they'd done into how popular Trump is in Europe. And there isn't a single country in the EU 27 where a majority of right-wing voters support Trump. So he has no majority anywhere. And then when you break it down into the right and far right, he has net favorables, but there's still kind of 30% support for Trump and maybe 10% against. So it's a significant net Mm. favorable, but absolutely nothing Mm. like a majority support. It's most people wanting to keep a distance. So I think maybe there's even some hard data there where people are saying, we don't want to be anywhere near Bannon because even our own voters don't like him. Mm. Yeah, yeah I, I think that there is an Americanness still to to the Trump and Steve Bannon brand of, you know, alt-right populism that perhaps is not fashionable here. I think that people like Salvini are smarter than Trump. He really plays to much smarter policy initiatives even. The same with Le Pen. Maybe Farage is a bit closer. Um, he... Well, a little bit of a one-trick well, They interacted yeah. more. That's why he's closer, I think. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the only country that does have a majority support for Trump amongst the right wing is the UK. Oh. Shock.
I'm shocked by that. No, there we go. Shock is a good note to end on. Uh, We love to be shocked here at EU Confidential. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. We are a growing community. There is more than 5,000 of you that have specifically signed up to get EU Confidential by the newsletter. There's another 1,000 of you on SoundCloud. We're growing all the time, and we're really grateful uh, that you come back to listen every week. If you haven't joined, go to politico.eu forward slash registration to do that and leave us a review online. That'll help more people see what we're doing and grow the community even further. And of course, podcasting is a team effort. So I have to thank Andrew Gray and Anya Bunker for everything they do to make EU Confidential possible.